We want to welcome you to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen as Pastor Matt Postiff explains and applies the biblical text one verse at a time. You can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, fbcaa.org. You can also watch our services live at fbcaa.org live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Join us now as Pastor Postiff opens God's Word. Ian is going to share with us Bible verses that he's memorized. A. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. B. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. C. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. D. Depart from evil and do good. E. Even a child is known by his deeds, whether what he does is pure and right. F. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. G. Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. H. Honor your father and your mother. I. If you love me, keep my commandments. J. Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. K. Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. L. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. M. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. N. Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us. O. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. Good. P. Praise the Lord, for it is good to sing praises to our God. Q. Aspire to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, and to work with your own hands. R. Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I will say rejoice. S. Submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. T. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. U. Not, sorry. Um, do, do not be unwise, but mm, understand what the will of the Lord is. V. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. W. Whenever I am afraid, I will trust in you. X. Exercise yourself towards godliness. Y. You are the light of the world. Z. Then he said, Come with me and see my zeal for the Lord. That was very good. Let's see. I think at this time we have our scripture reading. Is that right? So I'm going to invite Jansen, if he'll come, and share with us the reading of God's word. Good morning. If you'll turn in your Bible to Acts chapter 8 this morning, we'll pick up our reading there as we work our way through this book. Acts chapter 8 this morning. We saw at the end of chapter 7 
that Stephen is put to death and Saul is there. And in verse 1 of chapter 8, it says, Now Saul was consenting to his death, that is Stephen's. At that time, a great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. Therefore, those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ to them. And the multitudes with one accord heeded the things spoken by Philip, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. For unclean spirits, crying with a loud voice, came out of many who were possessed. And many who were paralyzed and lame were healed. And there was great joy in that city. But there was a certain man called Simon who previously practiced sorcery in the city and astonished the people of Samaria, claiming that he was someone great, to whom they all gave heed from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the great power of God. And they heeded him because he was astonished because he had astonished them with his sorceries for a long time. But when they believed Philip as he preached the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women were baptized. Then Simon himself also believed, and when he was baptized, he continued with Philip and was amazed, seeing the miracles and signs which were done. Now when the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them, who, when they had come down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For as yet he had not fallen upon none of them. They had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. And when Simon saw that through the laying on on of the apostles' hands the Holy Spirit was given, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, that anyone on whom I lay hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, Your money perish with you, because you thought that the gift of God could be purchased with money. You have neither part nor portion in this matter, for your heart is not right in the sight of God. Repent, therefore, of this this, your wickedness, and pray God if perhaps the thought of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see you are poisoned by bitterness and bound by iniquity. Then Simon answered and said, Pray to the Lord for me that none of the things which you have spoken may come upon me. So when they had testified and preached the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel in many villages of the Samaritans. Now an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, saying, Arise and go toward the south along the road which goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is desert. So he arose and went, and behold, a man of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority, under Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians, who had charge of all her treasury and had come to Jerusalem to worship, was returning. And sitting in his chariot, he was reading Isaiah the prophet. Then the spirit said to Philip, Go near and overtake this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading the prophet Isaiah and said, Do you understand what you are reading? And he said, How can I unless someone guides me? And he asked Philip to come up and sit with him. 
The place in the scripture which he, was, which he read was this. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before his, its shearers, it, it is silent. So he opened not his mouth. In his humiliation, his justice was taken away. And who will declare his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. So the eunuch answered Philip and said, I ask you, of whom does the prophet say this, of himself or of some other man? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning at this scripture, preached Jesus to him. Now as they went down the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, See, here is water. What hinders me from being baptized? Then Philip said, If you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. So he commanded the chariot to stand still, and both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and he baptized him. Now when they had come up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord caught Philip away, so that the eunuch saw him no more, and he went on his way rejoicing. But Philip was found at Azotus, and passing through, he preached in all the cities till he came to Caesarea. Trust God will bless that reading of his word. Let's turn our Bibles to Genesis 23 this morning, please. We're going to continue our series in the book of Genesis. We began way back uh, many months ago now in chapter 1. We're now up to chapter 23. And this chapter is not the uh, happiest uh, chapter by content or the most exciting, but I think it does provide us something that is somewhat um, helpful and gives us some application. So we're going to see what we can do with this this morning. Genesis chapter 23, uh, all the verses, 1 through 20. I want to just mention that, first of all, you could read this passage as just a newspaper article that doesn't move you. It's just something that happened to somebody, and uh, I don't think that's the right way to read it. The way to read it is at least with some sympathy, if not for some empathy for the family that underwent this difficulty because we see in chapter 23, verse 1, Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. So Sarah died in Kirjath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham came to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. You could read this passage then as if it happened to your own family. The mother or father, beloved in your sight, who passes away. A spouse who, after many, many years of marriage, has left this life. Think about it that way. Think about it a little more deeply than just, oh, this just happened to somebody. This did really happen to a family and a biblically important family at that. The passage deals with the death of Sarah, the mother, really the mother of Israel, we could say, the uh, matriarch of the nation, the procurement of her burial plot and, and her burial itself. And it's the earliest account in the Bible, a detailed account given of the death of a biblical character. Many deaths in Scripture are simply recorded like in chapter 5, and he died, and he died, and he died. But a prime place is given to Sarah in this text, a great amount of detail, and, and we might wonder why that is. Interesting that Sarah is 
and I'm quoting here from a commentary that is footnoted there in the notes for you, Sarah is the only woman in Scripture whose age, death, and burial are mentioned, probably due to the fact that she is the venerable mother of the Hebrew people. There are a number of other women in Scripture who are mentioned as to their age, and uh, we remember Anna, for example. I preached on her around Christmas time in Luke 2, 36 and 37, just two or three short verses that mention her and her interaction with uh, the Messiah and uh, Mary and Joseph. Uh, it says there that she was a widow who was 84 years old. And of course, as we commented there, some people say, well, she was actually a widow for 84 years after her seven years of marriage and after her uh, you know, youth. So that would put her probably well over 100 years old. Whatever the case, I think you would agree whether you're 84 or 104, you probably are in the old category, generally speaking. Um, you also have in the book of Ruth, uh, Ruth chapter 4, verse 15, Naomi's friends talk to her, tell her to rejoice and join her in rejoicing for the son that was born to Ruth and talk to her about her old age and how she is being now a grandmother to a little child in that old age. Uh, Elizabeth, remember Elizabeth and Zacharias in Luke chapter 1, another one in Luke. Luke is fond of giving some kind of details like this, isn't he? A historical fellow and really researched well his work. And he, he talks about uh, Zacharias and Elizabeth. They're very honorable, godly people. They were walking in the commandments and laws of the Lord, blameless. And they were of a great age, the scripture says. Uh, a very high age. They were beyond the years of bearing children, and yet God was going to do something with them similar, not exactly the same as what he did with Joseph and Mary, and give them a son. And that son was very remarkable for the fact that he would be the forerunner of Christ. But Sarah appears to be the oldest one whose age is given. And she's you know, from that era in which people live to a great length of time, far greater than we do today. Uh, in some cases at least. I'm sure there were those who met their demise earlier due to criminal activity or disease or whatever, but she's the one with the uh, highest age. Otherwise, we don't ask the ages of the women in the Bible. But actually, that's, that's uh, because we're so sensitive to that today in our culture. But actually, I, I want to emphasize that the truth that age Age, especially advanced age, is a badge of honor, not of shame, not of dishonor. In fact, in the scriptures, it reminds us that we are to rise before the gray-haired. We are to treat those who are our elders with respect. That is an important concept, both for our young people and our middle-aged people. We don't dump our old people off to the side of the road and forget them. And we certainly don't ignore them when they say to us, hey, I'd like to share with you some wisdom, some wisdom gained over the years. You can't gain that wisdom when you're 15. You have to live life to be able to gain that wisdom. And God, when he allows somebody to live to an advanced age, uh, they may not be able to say many words if they're not well or they're not strong, but do take note of those words that they do speak because they often have an outsized importance 
to uh, what you might see uh, of a shell on the outside, filled, however, with wisdom on the inside. I trust. Now, not every older person is like that, but I'm thinking of older believers in, in, in primarily in my mind. So this is the situation with Sarah. The account of the death itself is not elaborate. The text tells us that she was 127 years old. It tells us that she, was, uh, she died in Kirjath Arba, or what we know better as Hebron. And so this is kind of like a very brief obituary statement. And sometimes perhaps you have, as I have, wondered when you read an obituary, like, boy, I'd like to know some more about what happened to this person. Um, and this account has a similar effect. You know, what, what disease did she have? How, how long did she suffer with it? How did she die exactly? But you know, it's not important for us to know those details. First of all, we know that because God didn't give them to us, so we don't have to have them if God didn't give them to us. But in, in a, a bigger kind of way than just that, uh, it's a, it's a manifestation of our bad desire to stick our nose into other people's business to know what they went through at the end of their life. Did I, did I say that clearly? To stick our nose into other people's business is a bad character trait. Keep your nose out of other people's business in general. It's none of our business, all the details of someone's death. That's private information. If they want to share that, they can share that. Some today are sharing their journey on you know, YouTube or on their blog, showing how they're going through cancer and all that as a, as a testimony or as an expression or as an encouragement to others who are going through the same thing. But that's their choice to do that. And even in their last moments, they don't do that because they can't. They don't have the strength or the ability to do so. My guess is most people do not want to share their worst moments with the world we do not want to have people remember how we died. We'd rather have them remember how we lived and our faith in the Lord and our accomplishments for Him and so on. So although this passage may leave you with the feeling of, I'd like a little more detail, we don't get that, we don't need that. Now, as we would expect, Abraham mourned and wept for her. It says in verse number uh, 2, Abraham came to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. And then he stood up from before his dead. So this is speaking of a mourning ritual that they had. Um, they uh, would spend some days, perhaps, in mourning. Although that's, that conclusion is somewhat, I would, I would kind of um, back off of that conclusion because if they didn't have a way to preserve the body, they probably wouldn't keep the body around too long before taking care of it. And that's the case in many cultures today. Somebody dies, later that day they're buried. They're gone. Uh, it's not a long, drawn-out affair in terms of having somebody's body out on display. These two, though, Abraham and Sarah, had to be quite attached to one another. If you think of it, 127 she was. When, when was Isaac born? When, at what age? She was 90. So that means for 37 years, she has raised and helped raise her son to young adulthood and seen him off to kind of begin in, uh, in that. But she hasn't seen him married, which may have been a grief to her soul, 37 years. We know that Abraham was 75 when he departed from Haran. Chapter 12, verse 4 tells us that. 
and we know it seems that he had been married to Sarah for some time by that point. And we know that when Isaac was born, she was 90, and he was how old? 100. So there's a 10-year gap. So that means when he was 75, she was 65. Do the math, 65 to 127. How much is that? 62 years they were together that we know of. And they probably were together a lot longer than that because she was 65. What about when she was 55, 45, 35, 25? They could have been married for 100 years. 90, 80, even if 70. If people reach 70 years of marriage today, it's a tremendous, tremendous accomplishment, isn't it? A great age, and usually they're married when they're, you know, 19 or 20 or something like 18 or something like that to make it to that, that great age. But in any case, a long time, they had a long marriage. And so when that happens, you know how it is for you. You don't hardly remember, some of you, the time before you were married, when you were single. Um, your life is, as you know it is with your spouse. That's all you know. That's all you really remember. And that's a good thing. But at this time, Abraham needs a burial plot for his wife. And so in chapter 23, verse 3 and following, let's read that segment, rather longer text, down to 18, and we'll see what happens here, and I'll make some comments on it. Chapter 23, verse 3, Then Abraham stood up from before his dead and spoke to the sons of Heth. Heth, I believe, is related to Hittite. And he said, I am a foreigner and a visitor among you. God told him he'd be a stranger, didn't he, in that land. And uh, he says, give me a property for a burial place among you that I may bury my dead out of my sight. And the sons of Heth answered Abraham and saying to him, hear us, my Lord, you are a mighty prince among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our burial places. None of us will withhold from you his burial place that you may bury your dead. Then Abraham stood up and bowed himself to the people of the land, the sons of Heth, and he spoke with them, saying, If it is your wish that I bury my dead out of my sight, hear me, and meet with Ephron, the son of Zohar, for me, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he has, which is at the end of his field, and let him give it to me at the full price as property for a burial place among you. Now, I want you to notice two times he has said, give me a place for burial. And uh, he says that again in verse number uh, nine, but he says, let him give it to me at the full price. So he's not asking for benevolence here. He's just saying, you give it to me and I'm going to give you money for it. Okay. Uh, Now, Ephron dwelt among the sons of Heth and Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the presence of the sons of Heth, all who entered at the gate of his city saying, No, my Lord, hear me. I give you the field and the cave that is in it. I give it to you in the presence of the sons of my people. I give it to you. Bury your dead. Then Abraham bowed himself down before the people of the land, and he spoke to Ephron in the hearing of the people of the land, saying, If you will give it, please hear me. I will give you money for the field. Take it from me, and I will bury my dead there. And Ephron answered Abraham, saying to him, My Lord, listen to me. The land is worth 400 shekels of silver. What is that between you and me? So bury your dead. And Abraham listened to Ephron, and Abraham weighed out 
the silver for Ephron, which he had named in the hearing of the sons of Heth, 400 shekels of silver, currency of the merchants. So the field of Ephron was in Machpelah, which was before Mamre, in the field, in the cave which was in it, and all the trees that were in the field, which were within all the surrounding borders, were deeded to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the sons of Heth before all who went in at the gate of the city. So Abraham needed a burial plot for his wife. He goes and goes through this, maybe a confusing little process here. I'll try to explain it. But eventually this burial plot was going to be used not only for Sarah, but also for Abraham himself, Isaac, Rebekah, Leah, and Jacob. And then later on, Joseph is going to purchase another plot of ground in which he is placed. And we know that because Joseph bought his plot for 100 shekels of silver and Abraham bought this one for 400 shekels of silver. And there seemed to be close... I didn't you know, do a depth, in-depth study on the geography of this, but it seems that Joseph is kind of expanding the uh, ground of the family burial uh, in, uh, somehow, whether it's next door or nearby or whatever. But um, in any case... Different plots of ground, different situations there, but not a big deal. Burial plots, cemeteries for these folks. Identifying this uh, field or this place is always like with Ephron the Hittite and the the words, uh, the cave of Machpelah. And that we see throughout uh, the, uh, the history of Genesis. Mentioned in Acts chapter 7, 15 and 16, the, the general location is Shechem. And uh, that's where they had their family plot. The account is quite detailed in how it describes the haggling over the soon-to-be cemetery property. And I wonder why the haggling and why this long, you know, kind of text about this. Why doesn't the Bible just say, well, they, he bought it for 400 shekels of silver and be done with it? I, I wonder if the details meant not only to act as a historical reminder but also to buttress the certainty of the sale and make it absolutely clear that the property belongs to the nation of Israel, that there can be no question. A detailed explanation is given of going to the title company here to make the arrangements and have the property sold so that it's known to all people that this belongs to Abraham and to his family. Abraham was a foreigner among the sons of Heth, and they apparently did allow foreigners to purchase property, so he had to request to purchase a burial plot from them. And the tribal leaders tell Abraham that because of his reputation, they'll simply give him a property. Or maybe it's that, you know, look, we'll sell you anything you want, wherever you tell us. That, you know, the blank check, kind of. It appears that Ephron was making a generous offer to Abraham, but some might question that this is either a negotiating tactic or it's a... Um, a way for him to get rid of this property because it has some uh, undesirable qualities to it. Maybe, you know, because of the feudal kind of system there that there were taxes on this property and if he got rid of it, that would be off of his, off of his tax bill or whatever. Somebody in a commentary suggested that. I tend to think that this is really just the negotiation going back and forth in what I would say to me is like a beating around the bush kind of negotiation an indirect way of negotiating. Have you experienced that or know what I'm talking about? Uh, whereas I, I personally, in our culture, and our Western society, am comfortable with the more direct approach. Like when I 
deal with somebody like I just bought something off of Facebook Marketplace. I go to them and I say, uh, uh, what's the lowest price you'll take? And they tell me, I, if, I, hopefully they tell me, and I say, done. You know? Or they ask me that same question, or I'll tell them and just get it over with and, you know, instead of going halves and kind of finally meeting in the middle and all that sort of stuff. It's a few bucks difference, not a huge deal. But um, So we do know that this is a negotiation uh, where, which took place. The sales price was determined. I did not look up what 400 shekels of silver is worth. You can do that on your own, do some math there. Uh, they weren't necessarily uh, coins, you know, like we have round coins today, maybe just chunks of silver that were weighed according to you know, their standard weighing system. Um, but it certainly was a good chunk of change. And uh, they did the negotiation and, and indirectly negotiated the sales price. Now, Abraham already knew the plot of ground that he wanted. He, had, he, know, he knew the land well enough. He knew there was a cave there. It was going to be a great place for a family crypt. Uh, and, but he was not going to take benevolence from these folks. Now, do you remember when I say that, does that trigger a memory for you about something else that happened in Abraham's life earlier? In Genesis chapter 14, when he came back from the battle of the kings, the kings said, look, you, you take it, take, take this, and uh, just give us the people back. And he said, nope, I'm not going to take a thread, except for what the guys have eaten on the way. Obviously, you know, they're worthy of some wage like that, but he didn't take anything. In fact, he gave as an offering to God a tenth of that to Melchizedek and did not get himself enriched so that it could not be said that another enriched Abraham but God because God had blessed him. That was his attitude in that. And maybe we should have that as well. Um, maybe we should. I sometimes think about that myself. I'll confess. We uh, live and exist at the kindness of God's people, and they give us gifts. Uh, the church supports us, and I think, hmm, you know, but that's God, that's God doing that. What's that? Trending. trending. <laughs> yeah, it, we can't be captured by money. We can't be captured by by wanting things or or the security that money provides, or the things that we think that it can do for us, or whatever. And he, he just said, look, that's not going to be the case that I'm going to take this property or try to get you down to the, to the lowest possible price. But they did deal with this. They, they uh, got it sold. Now the land belongs to the family really in perpetuity. This is deeded over, and they talk about the trees on the land and the surrounding borders and the cave and the field and, and all of that. So they, they sold it. Now, burying the dead out of my sight is another phrase that we see here, and, and he says it a couple of times in uh, verse uh, 4 he does and, um, and elsewhere down later in the passage. Bearing the dead out of sight. And it's a statement which initially may seem strange, but when death comes to visit your family, you will have no question about the meaning of this. It will seem very natural. It's, it is time to put the beloved's body into the earth so that it can return to the dust from whence it came. Burial of a dead body ties each and every person back to the creation 
account in Genesis 1 through 3 and to Adam and Eve who fell and took the, na- the, uh, the, the, the race of humans with them into sin. Sin did enter the world, Romans 5 tells us, and then what happened as a result of that? And death through sin and death spread to all men because all sinned and also because of decay. Just stop for a minute there. I was just thinking about this. You know, it, the moment somebody dies, practically that moment, I mean, certainly that moment, the body is somehow different than it was before when the spirit, this, the spirit was housed inside of that body and the body was a living soul, part of a living soul. But then within minutes and hours and certainly within a couple of days, degradation sets in, which tells you what about what your body is doing right now at this moment. It is, it is actually fighting the process of decay and trying to regenerate uh, itself physically so that it doesn't begin to show that corpse-like characteristic that we see when somebody passes away. Because of decay, what was once beloved and a delight to the eyes becomes unpleasant and it has to be put away. And once it's put away, it feels better, doesn't it? There's a sense of closure there. It doesn't feel wonderful, but it feels better because something is done that has to be done. And that's a sad thing. But, you know, in a way, we have to deal with it kind of frankly because that's all of our end. If the Lord doesn't return, all of us are going to go through that. And we have to be, you know, like... What's the word? Realistic about it? And not pie in the sky, or I'm going to avoid that, or I'm going to, some technology is going to come along. Or, or mostly people say, well, yeah, I know that, but it's so far off, especially when I'm a young person. I don't really have to worry about it. I'm, I'm just going to live my life and see what happens. Um, that's a short-sighted way to live, my friends, because this life is a vapor, and some of our vapors last a lot shorter than others of our vapors. So he wanted to bury his dead out of his sight. Now the owner of that piece of property, Ephron the Hittite, again offered the property, but Abraham refused to take it for nothing. He said it was worth 400 shekels of silver. So what's that between them? I I don't know about you, but I wouldn't say 400 shekels of silver was nothing. Um, It's something. But for them, they were wealthy enough. they They could handle it. And so he paid the purchase price after this haggling. Now, the legal side of the deal, if you look there at, um, in chapter 23, it says in verse 18, uh, this was deeded to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the sons of Heth before all who went in at the gate of his city. So the legal side of the deal was sealed at the gate of Ephron's city. The gate is where all the official business was carried out. That was the title company location. The elders gathered there, the public gathered there, and they would be able to witness this transaction happening. Money for property deed, and now everybody knows this property and their family. They're going to tell their families, and it's going to be recorded in oral history, as well as perhaps in written, if they did that at all there, that the sale was ratified with witnesses and everything recorded like it is when we go to the title company and the the deed is recorded with the county and and all of that sort of thing. 
Now, Sarah is buried in chapter 23, verses 19 through 20. Let me read those with you. And after this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of Machpelah before Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. So she, she passed away and they buried her nearby in Hebron, Kirjath Arba. So the field and the cave that is in it were deeded to Abraham by the sons of Heth as a property for a burial place. Now, we don't know what kind of preparation was done for Sarah's body, um, if they had a special uh, kind of thing for that, uh, whether it was little, whether it was extensive. Today, embalming is quite an extensive process. And if you have a weak stomach, you might not want to ask any more questions about it. Just let the funeral uh, director uh, do his thing, the mortician. Um, Many people in the United States today are opting for other kinds of burial. Some are doing this green burial thing. Some are doing cremation. Uh, they, they object perhaps to, well, the expense or putting all the chemicals in their body and then putting it in the ground to contaminate the ground or whatever, however they think. Um, that's not a huge concern to me at this point. We can talk about that another time if you want. But the Bible notes here that the property was deeded to his family and this, to me, indicates the, val- the validity of long-term property purchases in, uh, in an economy. So this happened 4,000 years ago. People understood the validity of transferring, trading money for property and so that somebody could say, I owned this parcel of land. Now, we can kind of get that feeling today. You know, congratulations, you're a new homeowner. And then you realize what's attached to that. And you realize that you're, you know, you're essentially renting from the government because you have to pay a lot of property taxes to keep that property, or else they'll take it away from you and all the, all the principal or uh, what do you call it, equity that it has with it. So it's a little bit discouraging that way, I suppose, and perhaps why some are not getting into property ownership and they make other arrangements, a rental, and so on, as if that reduces the price of property ownership. It just passes it through other hands. But uh, at least property was held here, and it was held for long generations, three generations we know about because of all the people that were buried there. Another importance of this passage by way of application is this, that um, it indicates the priority of burial to the, for the disposal of a dead body, which I believe shows respect both to the deceased and to God. <clears throat> if God said from dust to dust, then you're, you're making an expression by saying, I'm committing this body to the ground from whence it came in physical format and trusting God will raise it again in accordance with his good will. Now, <clears throat> some are buried at sea, some are buried on land, and I don't have a case to make against either of those uh, burial methods. Um, never had opportunity to be involved in a funeral with a burial at sea. But uh, in either case, we believe it's important to treat the human body with respect, for it is a part of the image of God. Now, why do I say that? Um, let me say it the way that we might think of it in chronological order. God made a body for Adam. That was going to be the pattern for all future human bodies and including the body of Jesus. And uh, that was when he, when he did that and breathed into him the breath of life, he became a living soul. That was Adam built, made, created in 
the image of God. But maybe it was that God planned the kind of body that Jesus would have, the kind of body that was suitable for life on earth and death by crucifixion and resurrection and living forever in that body. He had that plan, and then he made Adam according to that plan in his image. And then Adam lived on that way. You see the point? That we we kind of think, you know, starting in Genesis 1-1, but God thinks beyond Genesis 1-1. He, is, he was before, and uh, he will be after world history is finished, and all of that. So perhaps we can look at the, I think the body is included in the image of God. Some people don't because uh, they just say that it's a, a moral, a spiritual, personal likeness, but I think the body is somehow attached there. And one of the reasons I think that is because uh, Scripture does not indicate that a bodiless existence is a good thing. In fact, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, if I, uh, I'd, I'd rather be swallowed up by, uh, by life, that mortality would be swallowed up by life, he's talking about being raptured, instead of going out of this life and being what he calls naked. Don't think bodily naked, no clothes. He's saying a spirit without a body attached to it, that I'm a naked spirit. That's what I think he's suggesting there, and he's saying it's not really an ideal state. I'll take it because I can go to heaven and have that, you know, that eventually I'll be re- have a resurrected body, a body not made with hands, eternal in the heavens, but he won't have that perhaps during the intermediate state or perhaps he'll have a temporary kind of outfitted uh, body, something, whatever. We don't know the details of that, but um, God has made us to exist in a bodily state for all eternity. You know that, right? We're going to be resurrected into our bodies that will be like Jesus' resurrection body, and we will live in that body forever and ever and ever. And in fact, Jesus is living in a human body right now in heaven. He didn't, he didn't just leave the body behind. I mean, they went into the tomb and they looked there, and what did they find? Look, you're looking for Jesus, but he's not here. He's risen. His body's gone. He took it with him. It was, it was transformed. It was metamorphosized, if you will, in, um, into its glorious form. Well, on, in my teaching series about death and dying, which I did a few years ago, I refer to this passage, along with many others, to show that the biblical pattern for handling a body at death is burial. Again, from, because of the connection from the ground with which, uh, you know, from which we came, um, and also because of these biblical examples. Sarah was buried. Abraham was buried. God buried Moses. Remember that? And Jesus was buried, not cremated. Uh, many, many passages in Scripture talk about burial. Sometimes I get questions about cremation or, you know, what about the extent to which embalming occurs? Is that too invasive? And I talk about that in that series on death and dying and preparing for that. I've got a link to that in the notes if you want to look that up on our website. It's, it is of some interest to me, by the way, that several of the examples of burial that I cited have to do with burial in a cave. And we don't have a lot of caves readily available to us, so we have to kind of dig into the ground and lower somebody into the ground instead of you know, putting them into a niche uh, in a cave or something that's hewn out of the rock. But when you live in a rocky location... 
all full of limestone hills and all that, maybe there are a lot more caves or opportunities to make those kinds of burial locations. Um, modern cremation is done for financial reasons, I think, mainly, uh, in the United States, but also maybe done in other countries because of lack of cemetery space. Well, some cultures and countries where you have to keep renting the space where your loved one is buried, either above ground or in the ground. It becomes an expense, like it's, you know, you're, you're not buying the plot of ground. It's like you're buying it, but you're paying a continual tax on it. So maybe they have them there until their bodies are decayed, and then they put them in a smaller place or move them or do something else. Um, but the practice of cremation is never <clears throat> really mentioned or endorsed in the scriptures, though if somebody dies by fire or is burned up, that's not a hindrance. To Almighty God to resurrect that body, bring them back uh, the way that he sees fit. But I will say this also, that in the scriptures, there is mention of the burning of bodies, and those are uh, like in the trash dump of the Valley of Hinnom, which came to be known as Gehenna, which was the picture that Jesus used of hell itself. Bodies that were burned there were were given uh, reproach. That was a sign of, of shamefulness uh, to them, criminals perhaps. Uh, bodies left out for the dogs and the vultures. We read some about those in, in unpleasant passages in the Old Testament. Some were hung on trees, and God said somebody that's hung on a tree is what? Accursed. And they didn't want to have the body hanging on the tree all night because that kind of def- promoted or propagated defilement to the whole land, and so they would take them off the the tree at night. And I've given you a number of passages there. All of that to say that it's important for us to treat the body because God made it. Fearfully and wonderfully made are we, and from the beginning to the end, life belongs to God. He gave it, he takes it. Our times are in his hands, and we need to take that seriously. Now, as I conclude, the, de- the account of Sarah's death is a significant event in biblical history. In fact, a chapter later, at the end of chapter 24, it's noted that her son had been grieving her death for some time, but when he found a spouse, he was comforted after his mother's death. That is a poignant passage of scripture. I don't think it has to be taken as a kind of a negative, like, oh, he's a little mama's boy, wah, wah, you know. He loved his mother, and, she, and he respected her. And he, you know, he knows the pain and suffering that she went through emotionally, mentally, waiting 90 years to have a child, and then she has, and, and, and raising him up, and he's the promised son, and she's so happy that he's taken up their faith and he's following their God, and, and God's working with him in that regard. We'll see more about that. Um, these are real people. This isn't just a story written on a piece of paper to teach some religious lesson. And the text also does raise practical matters for us, like preparing for our own passing. We need a place to be buried, a church service to comfort those who survive, and final arrangements for the disposition of our property. It may be unpleasant to think about it, but death is real. And we say we want to live well, but let me also put this in your mind. We need to die well. 
for the Lord. However, he works that out. Let us pray. Father in heaven, a sobering topic to be sure, but you've put it in your word, and we trust that it's there for very good reason. Help us to make the appropriate, take the appropriate steps, measures, that we might be ready for this as well. Sometimes we have to buy burial plots or make out wills and tell people what our wishes are and all of those things. Lord, help us to treat the deceased with great respect. When we see a coffin, not to just sit by and treat it like so many molecules rolling by on the wheeled cart, but to stand and to give respect to the deceased. Not because they're so perfect or whatever, but they were and are made in the image of God and worthy because you are worthy of some level of respect and honor as they are moved from their place of death to the funeral home, to the church, to the cemetery. Lord, we are thankful too for the example of Isaac who found comfort in another human relationship, which we'll see next time after the passing of his mother. And for Abraham, who treated his wife with great dignity and found for her, even at great expense, a burial plot so that he could bury his dead out of his sight. Thank you for all of this now in Jesus' name. Amen.